0: Title of the message this morning is the subtle snare of temptation, the subtle snare of temptation we're going to look at one verse this morning, Matthew chapter six, verse thirteen let's go ahead and turn our attention to our text this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability as we have over the preceding weeks we're going to read verses nine through fifteen in their entirety, but our study this morning will confine us specifically to verse. Thirteen. Matthew, recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins the following words. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, the world will pass away, but the word of our great Lord abides forever. You may be seated. We're going to talk about temptation this morning. The challenging subject, James tells us that we all stumble in many ways, we all are tempted in many ways, and sometimes we toss the towel in and we give in to that temptation and we let the evil desires of our hearts run rampant. The subtle snare of temptation. Four points on your outline this morning, if you're taking notes, always encourage you to do so. I want to be practical this morning in how we, how we talk about temptation, how we deal with temptation, how we approach it, and how we should grow as believers. I think the first thing that we have to be clear about when we're talking about temptation is that we must know our enemy. You must know your enemy. Look at verse 13. Jesus encourages us to pray, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to talk about that second phrase here for just a moment. Jesus says, but deliver us from evil. As you look at your Bible there, probably most of your translations, not every translation here represented this morning, but most of your translations probably read, deliver us from evil. But a literal translation of the Greek reads, deliver us from the evil one. You see, evil, it's the Greek word paneros. Uh, And it means to be hurtful or to be painful, evil. And it can either be used in the masculine gender or it can be used uh, as a neuter gender. We see it in the neuter gender. In verses like Luke 6.45, Jesus said this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the, and here it is, the evil treasure. That's, That's neuter gender. Produces evil. Likewise, Paul said, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But we see this word, paneros, here, in the masculine gender, in verses like Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, where Jesus said, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, here it is, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. John tells us, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John five nineteen. So it can be used as a neuter gender, just speaking of evil in general, or it can be used in the masculine gender, speaking of the evil one. This is a case where I think our translations have missed it a bit. Because the, the literal translation of the Greek should include the evil one. This is masculine here. As you look at the second phrase of Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, but deliver us from the evil one. We're talking about a person here, not an impersonal force, not something out there. We're talking about an individual. And that's why we must know this individual, we must know our enemy. Jesus encouraged us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. It's interesting to note that on two occasions, Satan, or the evil one, is actually called the tempter. First, in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew writes of Jesus' temptation and says, the tempter, that is the evil one, came to him, Jesus, and said, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Secondly, we see it in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, where Paul writes, for this reason... I could no longer bear it any longer, and so I I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Aside from being called the tempter, Satan has been referred to as a murderer and a liar, John chapter 8. A roaring lion seeking prey in 1 Peter chapter 5. A serpent, Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation 12. An angel of light, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see, our modern day view of Satan, at least our culture's modern day view of Satan, is a little red man in spandex with a tail and horns. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you that is a vast understatement. We have a real enemy, a roaring lion, a tempter, one who seeks to devour. Satan is powerful. He's much more powerful than you think he is. Now, he's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. But he is powerful. He is very powerful, oftentimes much more so than we think. Foolish are we if we underestimate his power John in Revelation chapter 12 did not call Satan or the evil one a dragon arbitrarily. He is evil, he is sinister, he is cunning, he's crafty, he's wise. Not only is he powerful, but he's intelligent. If you can remember back to our study of Ephesians, specifically in chapter 6, we learned that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the schemes, the schemes of the devil. The word translated "schemes." It's the Greek word "methodia." It's where we get our English word "methods" from. Carries the idea of craftiness or trickery or cunning, or the idea of laying or crouching in wait, like a lion crouching in the open plains for its prey. So Satan is crafty in his attacks, and so therefore, as believers, we cannot afford to be ignorant of his operations. Satan's intelligent. He doesn't always attack directly. He doesn't always attack in the same ways. He uses a variety of times. He uses a myriad of methods. He schemes. And in order to stand a chance against our enemy, the evil one, the devil, which Jesus encourages us to pray here, we must know something about the way he works. We acknowledge this principle in competitive sports. We acknowledge this principle in modern warfare. I mean, Collegiate and professional coaching staff and players will watch hours upon hours of their opponent's previous game footage to learn how they operate and to formulate both an offensive and a defensive strategy. It's so interesting. My son had a flag football game yesterday. I mean, this is City League, okay? Ten years old. And the coach on the other side of the field was wearing a GoPro so that he could film the game. To go back, it's brilliant. It, it's wise from a coaching perspective, so that he could go back and watch the game footage that he might know how to better instruct his players against their opponents. You see, we acknowledge we acknowledge this principle in competitive sports. We acknowledge this principle in modern warfare. I mean, our military does not engage a threat uh, or or walk into combat without a plan without a war plan, without a very clear and strategic war plan. Prior to engagement, we study our enemies' tactics. We learn their strengths. We learn their weaknesses. And so if it's important that we know the tactics of our physical enemies, how much more should we know the tactics of our spiritual enemies? I want to commend a book to you. I've commended it to you before, specifically for young men. J.C. Ryle's book, Thoughts for Young Men. If you are a man and you have a heartbeat, you have a pulse this morning, get a copy of J.C. Ryle's book, Thoughts for Young Men. Don't let the, the title lead you astray. This is fantastic reading, thoroughly biblical reading for older gentlemen as well. This is what Ryle says in Thoughts for Young Men. He says, men, and the same could be said of women here. Beware of being taken by his snares. That's the evil one. He will try to throw dust in your eyes and prevent you from seeing anything in its true colors. He would eagerly make you think that evil is good and good is evil. He will paint and cover you with gold. He will dress up sin in order to make you fall in love with it. He will deform and misrepresent and caricature true Christianity in order to make you dislike it. He will exalt the pleasures of wickedness. He will hide from you all their sting. He will lift up from before your eyes the cross and its painfulness, but he will keep out of sight the eternal crown." He will promise you everything as he did Christ if you will only serve him. He will even help you wear a form of Christianity if you will neglect its power. He will tell you at the beginning of your lives, it is too soon to serve God. And then he will tell you at the end, it is far too late. Oh, don't be deceived, Ryle says. Don't be deceived. And so let's talk about some of these tactics here for just a moment. Maybe keep your bulletin there uh, in Matthew chapter 6. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to to look at the anatomy of temptation from Genesis chapter 3. I think we see it very clearly in Satan's interactions, the serpent's interactions with Adam and Eve. We see a very clear anatomy of temptation. I think the first thing that we see is we see that our enemy, the evil one, loves to launch surprise attacks. I mean, that's the art of war, is it not? The art of the surprise attack On November 26, 1941, six Japanese aircraft carriers supported by a whole fleet of ships steamed from the Kuril Islands into the stormy North Pacific. And for the next eight days, that armada, which carried more than 400 fighter planes and bombers, secretly sailed 4,000 miles towards Hawaii. Those warships arrived in the waters just north of Oahu on the night of December 6th. And at dawn the following morning... Those carriers launched nearly 360 warplanes in two waves to strike at the American Naval and Air Forces at Pearl Harbor. That attack, which began precisely at 7.48 a.m. on Sunday, December the 7th, came without warning. It was a surprise attack. In three frantic hours, Japanese planes destroyed ships and battleships. They crippled other uh, war fleet of ours. They, They damaged nine additional surface vessels. Nearly 200 American aircraft were left in flames on the runway as they were bombed, sitting there waiting to take off. Casualties were numbered in the thousands. The disaster at Pearl Harbor has been noted by some as the single worst intelligence failure in U.S. history surprise attack it's the art of war we see the same thing taking place in genesis chapter three that's why jesus tells us by the way matthew chapter 26 jesus is dialoguing with his disciples and he says guys fellas listen up watch and pray watch and pray guys That you may not enter enter into temptation, because the spirit is indeed willing, but but the flesh, it's weak. Watch out, that's be on guard, keep alert. Matter of fact, the verb watch in Matthew chapter 26, we'll get back to Genesis 3 here in just a second, but the verb watch in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus talking to his disciples, it's in the active voice, the imperative mood, and the present tense. And you say, great, that sounds highly cerebral. What does it mean? Here's what it means. And it has incredible practical implication for us. The fact that the verb watch is in the active voice means that watching is an activity that we must personally do. In other words, it will not be done for you. The responsibility to watch rests squarely on our shoulders, brothers and sisters. We must be wide-eyed. We must be alert. We must be vigilant. It's in the imperative mood. That means that watching is an activity that we must willfully do. In other words, it doesn't automatically happen. You must set your heart and mind to be about the business or the task of watching. It's not going to happen all by itself. And it's in the present tense, which means that watching is an activity that we must constantly do. In other words, it will be a necessity until Jesus returns or calls us home. Jesus tells us, watch and pray that you might not fall to a surprise attack because the evil one is cunning and he's crafty. He's powerful, he's intelligent, and he's wise. He schemes. He uses a variety of methods. Temptation is one of his favorites. You see, the tactic here, surprise attack. This is precisely how Satan loves to assail God's people with temptation. We are the most vulnerable when we are the least suspecting. You got that, friends? We're the most vulnerable when we're the least suspecting. I think what we see in Genesis chapter 3, first of all, just as we read the account of the, the plunge of man into sin, is that it was a surprise attack. Adam and Eve weren't ready for it. The second thing I think we see there is the tempter, the evil one, subtly presents half truths. Matter of fact, John chapter eight, Satan is referred to as the father of lies. He he twists truth or mixes it just enough with falsehood so that it seems palatable. Larry mentioned all the false teachers that are out there today. You want to know the best place to find false teachers? A Christian bookstore. Watch out. Watch out, friends. If it's a good resource and you want to get your hands on it, more times than not, you've got to order it. It won't be sitting on the shelf at the Christian bookstore. If it's sitting on the shelf, exercise discernment and wisdom. Okay? Satan is the father of lies. He presents half-truths. He's winsomely shrewd. He's an expert in the art of subtlety. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Here's where I want to draw your attention to the text here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Moses writes, now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. You see, though Satan had a forked tongue, he was eloquent. And his insidious intentions oftentimes are unsuspected. You see, Eve was caught off guard, and she bought temptation's lie. The tempter subtly presents half-truths. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Looking at the anatomy of temptation here, as we take a step further, we see that the tempter minimizes the consequences of sin. That's what he does. The tempter always minimizes the consequences of sin. Surprise attack, the subtlety of half-truths, and then the tempter. He minimizes the consequences of sin. One of Satan's favorite schemes is to make sin seem like it's just not a big deal. It's only a piece of fruit, isn't it? He makes the deal seem too good to be true. Don't worry, be happy is his mantra. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Here's where the tempter comes along and he minimizes the consequences of sin. Look at the text. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You see, sin is only concerned with the moment. It never considers the future consequences. Remember that, friends. When you're tempted to sin in any way, that temptation is to take hold of the momentary and to forget the consequences that follow on the heels of sin. The 17th century Puritan Richard Sibes calls us to remember. He says, Satan gave Adam and Eve fruit, but he took away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, let us consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. That's wisdom right there. That's wisdom. The tempter minimizes the consequences of sin. You will not surely die. Don't think about the future. Don't worry. Be happy. Next, the tempter undermines God's authority. You see, without directly contradicting God's words, Satan cast just enough suspicion on God's command to cause Eve to reconsider her conviction of God's truthfulness. Look back at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, here's undermining God's authority, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. There's a half-truth there, because that's not what God said to begin with. He didn't say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He said, you shall not eat of this tree in the garden. But we see here, too, the tempter undermining God's authority. Did God really say? You sure about that? You really sure about that? Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. And then the tempter incriminates God's character. Look at verse 5. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, Satan incriminates God's character when he says, For God knows that when you eat of it, that's the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, temptation works on the empty promise of something is better. Temptation works along the lines or on the premise of something is better. We're oftentimes easily enticed by that premise that something new will be more satisfying than what we already have. I mean, consider Apple and other companies that have built entire empires capitalizing on this promise. You need something better. What you have is insufficient. We so easily buy into that lie. We so easily give in to that temptation. And Satan uses this tempting lie to cause us to be suspicious that God has chosen to withhold his best from us. You see, when Satan tempted Eve in the garden, what he did is effectually to put God's character on trial. He convinced Eve that God had withheld from them the tree's power and its pleasures, and so in doing so, he clouded the validity of God's goodness in their hearts and in their minds. As Eve began to suspect that God wasn't good, you know what she noticed? The fruit sure looks good. Temptation. Temptation. Look at verse 6. Moses goes on and he writes, So when the woman saw that the tree was good, remember? Satan tempted her to remove goodness from the loci of God alone and to place it on something else, something better. God's withholding on you. He's, He's not being good to you. And so when the woman looked at the tree, she said, Ah, well then that's good. Then that's good. It was a delight to the eyes the tree was desired to make one wise so she took of its fruit and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate you see the aim of satan's efforts are always the same they're this to deceive us into believing that the momentary pleasures of sin are more satisfying than the enduring pleasure of obedience that the momentary pleasures of sin are more enduring than the or they are more enduring more lasting And the pleasure of obedience. And so, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, there, we see the anatomy of temptation. We see surprise attack. We see the subtlety of half truths. We see the minimizing of the consequences of sin, the undermining of God's authority, and the incriminating of God's character. Friends, let me tell you every time you face a temptation, no matter what it is, those are the same lies that are operating under the surface. Same lies. We must know our enemy if we'll prevail in the war. Number two on your outline, you must know yourself. Not only do you need to know your enemy, but you need to know yourself. You need to know some things about you, and you need to know those things really, really, really well. Okay? Let me ask you a question here. Where does temptation come from? Does it come from the inside Or does it come from something on the outside? You ever considered that? Where does temptation come from? Inside or outside? In other words, is temptation a result of external circumstances, situations, and influences? Or internal desires that are allowed to feast on their wants? Let me suggest to you that it is the second. Temptation is the result of our internal desires that are allowed to feast on their wants. James reminds us in James chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured, lured. Think fish, think bait, think shiny things, think bite the hook, lured and enticed by his own desire. We're tempted. We're tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. Temptation is an inside job. Friends, Jerry Bridges is in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, which I would also commend to you, comments on James 1.14, and he says this, he says, it is our own evil desires that lead us into temptation. We may think that we merely respond to outward temptations that are presented to us, but the truth is our evil desires are constantly searching out temptations to satisfy their insatiable lusts. You ever thought about temptation that way? You ever thought about the fact that the evil desires of our hearts are actually in search of temptation to satisfy their insatiable lusts? Temptation comes primarily from the inside. Now, do external situations and circumstances play into temptation? Absolutely, they do. They most certainly do. But temptation primarily comes from the inside. Our flesh sets fire to sin. Satan simply fans the flames. Okay? That's an important distinction. The evil one is very bright, and he knows precisely how to exploit the sinful desires of your hearts. How well do you know you, friends? How well do you know you? Make no mistake about it. The evil one knows you. He knows where you're weak. He knows where your defenses are low. He knows. He knows where your shield is penetrable. Do you know you? You see, the strength of temptation also comes oftentimes from a tendency to, to push good virtues, that's that's good things, to such an extreme that they become vices or sinful things. Let me explain here. For example, it's all too easy for the joy of eating to become gluttony. Or for the blessing of rest to become slothfulness, or for the peace of quietness to become non communication, or for industriousness to become greed, or for liberty to be turned into an excuse for licentiousness. We all know what it's like for pleasure to become sensuality, for self care to become selfishness, or for self respect. To become conceit? You see, the strength of temptation comes from a tendency to push virtues, good things, to an extreme that they become sinful things. So, let me ask you this question, friends. Do you know what stirs you up? Do you know what fans the flame? You see, our evil desires, they can be thought of like embers of a fire. Consider that for a minute. Uh, Our heart's desires, our evil desires, which reside in all of our hearts, right? They can be thought of like embers of a fire. If they're left alone, the fire will extinguish itself and will likely do no harm. But on the other hand, if those embers are stirred up, if they're fanned by the compromise and and temptation, that fire will begin to rage out of control as long as there is sufficient fuel. Another visual picture for you here would be that of sediment on the bottom of a pool. To keep my cardio fitness through the winter months, when cycling season is set aside, I oftentimes swim uh, throughout the winter months. And as I'm swimming, I oftentimes notice at the bottom of the pool, there are accumulations or piles of grit and dirt and sand that, that begin to build up. You see it oftentimes in the deep end of the pool. As long as that dirt remains at the bottom of the pool, the water remains clear, but if the water is stirred up, then it becomes cloudy. You see, at times our desires, the sinful evil desires of our hearts, they're like the dying embers of the fire and the stationary sediment at the bottom of the pool, but if they're left unchecked, they can easily be stirred up by temptation and compromise. Do you know, friends, what stirs you up? Do you know where you're weak? Do you know where you're prone to temptation? Are there particular people that when you spend time with them, you are influenced in such a way that adds fuel to the fire or stirs the water of your desires? Are there places that you go that fan the flames of your temptation? Are there times of the day, I would say perhaps times of tiredness, when your guard is dropped? Martin Luther once said, temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. We cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, but there is no need that we should let them nest in our hair. You get that, friends? Oftentimes we let the birds nest in our hair. We entertain circumstances and situations and people that stir up the waters of our evil desires and fan the flames of our evil desires. Friends, I think one of the things that we need to learn how to do much better is to say no. We need to learn how to say no. You see, every time you say yes to temptation, you make it harder to say no the next time. Charles Spurgeon once said, What are the settings that you're in when you fall? Avoid them. What props do you have that support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. Paul reminds us in Titus chapter 2, he said, For the grace of God has appeared. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Who is that? That's the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Christ and he teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. Oh, friends, we need to learn how to say no. To say no to sin, to say no to temptation, to say no to certain places, to say no to certain people, to say no to certain times. Do you know how to say no? I think one of the most hurtful questions that we can ask as believers when it comes to the arena of sin and temptation is how close to the line can I get? How close to the line can I get? Friends, that's always the wrong question. How close can I get? In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10, wise Solomon said to his son, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then just a few verses later, he said, My son, do not walk in the way with them, that is sinners. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run into evil. What is Solomon saying here? He's telling his son, and fathers, we would do well to tell our sons. Mothers, we would do well to tell our daughters. Steer clear of any person or occasion that might stir you up and tempt you to sin. But unfortunately, unfortunately, the evil desires that lurk in our hearts want to know how close to the line we can get without stepping over it. And we foolishly, we foolishly underestimate the deceitful lure of sin and we overestimate our ability to remain free from its entanglements. You catch that, friends? We underestimate the power of temptation, and in doing so, we overestimate our ability to remain free of temptation's entanglements. What Paul said in Romans chapter twelve, verse three—probably many of us have Romans twelve one and two memorized—and that's a fantastic text to have memorized. Just go a little farther. Paul says this, Romans 12, 3 says, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of grace that God has given you. Oftentimes we think of ourselves more highly than we ought when we minimize sin's power and we overestimate our ability to remain free from temptation's grip. Stories told of an old man who once advertised his need for a driver his horse and coach. Obviously, this illustration goes back some days here. And this man, he, he, he offered uh, a generous salary with generous benefits, and as you can imagine, he had numerous applicants that applied for the position. And after studying these applicants, he eliminated all but four men, and then he invited each of these four men in for an interview. And one by one, they were brought in, and they were asked this one single question, Here's the question. We're out in the countryside traveling on a narrow road, and there's a mountain on one side and a deep, sharp cliff on the other. How close could you drive to the cliff and not go over? That's the question asked to all four of the final applicants. Three of the men stated that they could come within a foot of the cliff and still not go over. but The fourth man said, I would stay as far away from the cliff as I could. That man got the job. You see, friends, that's a much better way to to approach temptation and sin. Is I want to steer as clear as I can of the cliff. How close can I get? Is always the wrong question. Do you know yourself? Are you prone? Are you prone to to creep to the line and to see how close you can get? I, I don't. I don't want to be legalistic in any way, but maybe it's. I can watch the movie, and, and I, can, I can let the content of what I'm watching come into my eyes and come into my mind and come into my heart, and I can remain unaffected by it. Or I, I have some other friends who, if they spent time in the company with these people, would certainly be tempted to fall, but I, I can handle it. That's another way of rephrasing the question, how close to the line can I get? without stepping over the cliff? And it's always, 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 without exception, the wrong question. Friends, I think we need to remember the Christian life is war. The Christian life... Is war. I think the number one reason that we lose so many of the daily battles with the evil one, that we give in to temptation and sin, is because we simply don't remember that the Christian life is war. And so subsequently, we are not prepared for battle. You see, amidst the pressures of our current world system, many of us have lost our zeal. We become spiritually apathetic, spiritually lethargic, and even at times, indifferent. Simply said, we've lost our desire to fight. Make no mistake about it, it's far easier to jump into the current of this world system and to float downstream than it is to turn around and to swim upstream. It's easier to sin than it is not to sin. You catch that, friends? It's easier to sin than it is not to sin. It's easier to surrender than it is to fight. One of the best ways to win the battle in the moment of temptation I've said this before and it bears repeating, is to plan your obedience in advance. Plan your obedience in advance. I think one of the reasons that we fall in that critical moment of temptation in whatever form it comes in, however my my heart, my my evil, the the evil desires of my heart are fanned into flame, is because we simply have not planned our, our obedience in advance. And so subsequently, you have to make an instantaneous decision at the moment of temptation. And more times than not, because we are not as strong as we think we are, we will fail in that moment instead of succeeding because we haven't planned our obedience in advance. Soldiers that walk into a war theater without a plan, if they do, they're easily confused, they're easily disoriented, they're easily distracted, and therefore they are easily disabled. Plan your obedience in advance. Before you go to the movie theater, before you go spend time with those friends, before you walk into this location, plan your obedience in advance, friends. Life is war. Ed Welch once said this. He said, there's something about war that sharpens our senses, especially when the enemy constantly hides. Think about this. Put yourself in a situation. Here you are, a soldier, and you're in the theater of war, and you hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and instantaneously you're in attack mode. Someone coughs, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant, friends. But for far too many of us, we're snoozing. We're not keeping watch. We're not praying. We're sleeping when life is war. Welsh goes on and he says, the problem is that we too often forget that we are in a war, or worse, we don't even know that there is a war. You see, unlike most modern warfare, where soldiers at least know there is an enemy somewhere, spiritual warfare tends to be especially covert. No one's getting shot, and many people seem to be managing their lives fairly well, at least from the outside looking in. All looks like business as usual. Add to this the fact that we actually like the enemy at times. We actually love our sin at times. And it's easy to understand why many of us act as though we're on vacation when we should be acting as though we're at war. must never forget that life is war. Number three, know the seasons. Know the seasons. Know your enemy, know yourself, and then know the seasons in which you are particularly prone to temptation. Let me give you just a few of them. This is not an exhaustive list, but a few of the seasons where we as believers may be especially prone to temptation and sin. Number one, when a Christian is young in the faith. When a Christian is young in the faith, you see, like a lion in the wild seeks to pick off the easiest prey, so Satan will often attack those who are young in their faith. Know that that is one of the seasons where temptation is oftentimes particularly strong. Secondly, when the Christian is afflicted or suffering in some way, that is a season where temptation can come barreling in. You see, when all is well, we oftentimes lack thankfulness and, and, and we forget about God's sustaining grace, but when a Christian goes through times of affliction, which we all will in this Genesis 3 fallen world, it's not if, but it's when, and in those moments of suffering and affliction, you can be sure that Satan is often nearby and quick to suggest that God has abandoned us He would have us believe that our trials must be evidence that we've been cut off from God and that if he ever was for us, he certainly isn't now. Temptation to question God's character in seasons of affliction and suffering. Number three, here's another season for you. When the Christian has achieved some sort of success, when we as believers achieve some sort of noticeable success, must be very careful when we're recognized or honored or esteemed. You see, in these moments, Satan would love to hand you the bottle of sweet pride to drink. And he'll not only encourage you to drink it, but he'll hold the bottom up for you. He would love for you to taste sweet sweet success, and in doing so, to trust in yourself and look away from Christ. You see, when we're convinced that we have everything under control... We become much less diligent. Again, we stop watching and we stop praying. Oswald Chambers once said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. Here's another season for you. When the Christian is idle, times of idleness. Finish this sentence. Idle hands are the... The devil's playground. Yeah, make no mistake about it. If Satan finds a man or a woman who is inactive, he will certainly soon find something for you to do. You can rest assured that it won't be pleasing to Christ. Let me ask you this question. What are you doing to stay busy for Christ? Not that you're earning anything by your busyness for Christ. It doesn't gain anything. doesn't add an ounce to your salvation. But what are you doing to stay busy for Christ? If you're idle you can rest assured that Satan will exploit that idleness and he'll find something for you to do. Here's another season. When the Christian's isolated from others, when we're all alone, surrounded by the body of Christ, we're in good company. For it's our brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage us, help us, challenge us, and call us to account when necessary. But when we're all alone Surrounded by non Christians who do not share our love for the things of God and our hatred for sin, then you can be certain Satan draws near. Satan draws near. I mean that's the whole tactic of the lion on the prairie, right? Is, is to chase the pack until one leaves the pack and finds itself all alone. Easy pray. Easy prey. And then lastly, here's another season when the Christian is dying. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to slip in in our last hours and to bring discouragement and despair. I think of two dear sisters, and I've mentioned this before, Patsy Meadows and Peg Pollard, and there have been many, many others. But Here's just two examples. Weak as they were in their flesh, they were warriors in heart and spirit. I mean, standing next to each of their hospital beds, they spoke not of fear and helplessness and hopelessness, They spoke of joy and confidence and peace that surpasses all understanding. Though I'm sure he tried, Satan wasn't able to shake these women and to cause them to feel defeated or abandoned by God in any way, shape, or form. And as they departed this sin-riddled world, they entered into the next resisting, resisting the evil one with their eyes firmly fixed on Christ. When the Christian is dying... That is a season of particular temptation. Lastly, this morning, and we'll land the plane here, know the word. Know the word. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know yourself. Know the seasons that you're particularly prone to temptation. And then lastly, know the word. You see, when we sincerely pray, as Jesus instructed us here, Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are declaring In that statement that we are in submission to God's word, which is our only protection from sin and temptation. I mean, James writes this in James chapter 4. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so you ask yourself, Well, what does it mean to submit to God? Well, I would submit to you that submitting to God means submitting to his word. Submitting to his word. Familiar to most of us are David's words. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Brothers, sisters, do you have God's word stored up in your heart? If not, you have no weapon. No weapon in the moment of temptation. I Means Satan's fiery darts of temptation won't easily penetrate a mind that is captivated by the beauty of Christ. As we see him in his word. You see, when our hearts and our thoughts are filled with the beauty and the splendor and the adequacy of God, little room is left for the evil one to come in and to gain a foothold. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter four when he was tempted? Looked the evil and right in the eyes and said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How many of those words do you have hidden in your heart and in your mind, friends? Paul said it this way. He said, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You won't think about them if they're not hidden there to begin with. Friends, know your enemy, know yourself, know the seasons, and know the word. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ savingly, our one encouragement to you, you have no hope against the evil one. Your only hope is to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, and then the things of earth subsequently grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. No amount of trying, no amount of striving, no amount of trying to be better or to fight temptation or to do good, to change your language, to change your attitudes, to change your actions. You can't do it. You need Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to or given to your otherwise spiritually bankrupt account. You do that simply by repentance, it means turning from your sin and subsequently turning to Christ and faith putting all your eggs in the basket of the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ.